Welcome to Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. This show is dedicated to bringing you all of the wellness and self-care tips that you need to live your best life. Unlike other sources, this one is focused on BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people. There are a ton of self-help shows out there, but how many are designed just for us? So if you're ready for all of the self-help and none of the white or het supremacy, you've come to the right place. Today, I have Stephen Wakabayashi on the show. Stephen has a podcast that is centered on mindfulness through a queer Asian lens. It is an awesome show. I absolutely recommend that you listen to it. After this interview, you'll probably be in love with Stephen anyway, so you won't need any encouragement from me. I hope you're ready to learn and have some wisdom infused into your day. All right, let's jump right in to today's conversation. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm like thrilled to have another queer podcaster on who is dedicating contents to a very specific part of the queer community. I say very specific, but that may just be me being ridiculous because when you think about Asian, that's a big old umbrella and that's a lot of people. So what made you decide that niching down to this target audience was something you wanted to do, needed to do, and people were going to gravitate toward it? Yeah, it's a long story over the course of my life, but just to distill what happened... A couple years ago, I got extremely sick. I've been working so hard and I ended up in the hospital for a few months with really bad stomach issues. I couldn't digest food. And as a part of that, I just had to take a break from everything. And in the year of recovery, kind of getting myself back together, I got really serious into meditation. And so as a part of that year, I ended up leaving my job. I went to travel around the world to study meditation. And actually, the biggest surprising moment was while I was studying meditation in Asia, I was actually still the minority. It's crazy, right? Yes, I'm that studying is really here. surprising. <laughs> I am studying in India, in Japan. In Thailand, and it was white majority meditators. I was typically only queer Asian individual. And just coming back, I saw how important sacred spaces are. And that if we, you, myself, and all of us, if we don't put the effort to create it, it's going to quickly disappear. And so, as a part of that, I was like, I want to create content that's relevant to mindfulness. This has helped heal me, but I want to create the sacred space. So I ended up with the podcast, Yellow Glitter. Uh, I love that. And I love the name. 
So when you first launched, did you have any qualms previously about fully integrating your gay identity into your business? Or have you done that for years, like even before you got sick? It's been a a lot of growing pains along the way to figure out that I am perfectly okay just as I am. Uh, For the long time, a lot of uh, internalized racism, Mm. right? Growing up, trying to whitewash myself. I was the minority from where I was from, the suburbs in Los Angeles, but way, way, way inland. And for the longest time, I just didn't want to see myself as Asian. And Mm. so as a part of the self-journey, I actually spent a considerable amount of time in Asia Going back, speaking my mother tongue in both Japan and in Taiwan, I'm half-half. And just having spent time in my homeland allowed me to really get in touch with my culture again. And I think it was an amazing opportunity to just find love, uh, find joy in who I am, my identity. And afterwards, I said to myself, I I only have one life to live. I might as well embrace who I am, what I'm given, my ethnicities, everything as a part of what I do. And definitely a lot of growing pains of realizing and even speaking about some of these issues that I had gone through, just going overcoming, right? Internalized racism, internalized homophobia, putting it out there on my podcast. And it was definitely healing for me, but definitely a lot of feedback from other individuals. And what touched me the most were queer Asians listening to it who aren't in metropolitan cities, who are the minority minority in sometimes middle America, middle of the world. And for them to reach out via Instagram or wherever to say, I just feel so heard, makes me so inspired to continue creating what I do. That's beautiful. I'm sure it's a tricky experience being the minority anywhere, but in the U.S., the Asian population is relatively small. And to even use that umbrella term, these are all these different cultural groups that don't necessarily have any affinity with each other. And if you were born and raised in Taiwan, you never in a million years would be like, when you're abroad, oh, look, someone over there looks like they're from Japan. We should hang out. Like never, right? This is only what happens as part of the immigrant experience where you kind of Mm -hmm. all get pushed together under this umbrella. But with you having that mixed ethnic background, how does that inform how you relate to your Asian-ness? Is that part of why you made the umbrella broader for your podcast? Yeah, I think... First of all, it's a lot of understanding other types of Asian cultures, how it's not a whole homogenous group identity. But as a part of my exploration, I think there's a lot of intricacies with the different Asian demographics, a lot of colorism, and a lot of the labeling, right? Even just like who is Asian? Typically, historically, it's been a lot of the East Asians who get that label, right? And all the different types of Asians would get uh, more derogatory terms like jungle Asian. And I think for myself, as a part of exploring even just what Asian means to me, also means to reach out and understand all these nuances 
within the Asian umbrella. So I think my challenge in doing the podcast for all Asians was to also identify all these other demographics to bring on my podcast rather than lean into my comfort zone, right? Which would be Japanese people, Taiwanese people. And so reaching out to South Asians, Southeast Asians, all different types of Asians to talk about what does it even mean to be Asian for them and to embrace that on my platform. Yeah, has been enlightening and a huge learning experience for me. Has most of your education about these nuances come directly from your guests or were you able to find resources that speak to that experience, like any good books or anything like that? Yeah, I would say a couple points, definitely as a part of my growth just being a part of the queer community, I've been able to embrace my minority identity. I think the queer community has been so accepting, so welcoming, and has allowed me to blossom and grow in so many ways. But just being a part of the queer community too, as you can relate, it's very white-centric at times. And so as a part of that, realizing that if we want to go deeper and really understand traumas, uh, the lived experiences. And to understand myself deeper, it led me to creating other organizations. I host a monthly support group for queer Asians. We used to hold it in New York City, but now we do it digitally. And surprisingly, we have people calling it from Philippines, London, all around the world, which is just amazing, awesome. But there aren't that many resources specific to these niche identities because in the past, we've had to congregate together as a much larger community, right? Because we didn't have the opportunity to have that space. So I think right now, the beautiful part is we had all these open pastures to explore ourselves. We are getting to create additional organizations with people that we relate a lot more with. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as part of books, uh, there's a couple books on just trauma that was really helpful. I think one really good one is, have you heard of the book, Didn't Start With You? No. So that book is, I think that's what it's called, It Didn't Start With You, about generational trauma Mm. and how we carry it and how children adapt to the environments. And sometimes it's absorbing a lot of what they observe with the parents and their trauma as well. And a lot of it talks about the generational patterns that go on and on and on. And as a part of exploring what does it mean to be creation and just to explore healing, I think it was understanding that I do carry a lot of my ancestral traumas as well. And what is some of that experience like? Because just like you mentioned, a lot of us have not been exposed to the stories outside of like a white centric narrative. And I am seeing a lot of movement toward people of color becoming more aware and interested in working through their colorism, working through the ways that we value proximity to whiteness and have conflict in between minority groups because of all of that internalized white supremacy. But people are becoming more interested in hearing other people's stories. And I don't know much about that experience. When you talk about generational trauma, what does that look like? Is that more coming from your Taiwanese ancestry or from Japanese ancestry or from just being Asian in the United States? I know a little bit about all the shadiness with how America treated Japanese Americans and that I know of never freaking apologized and didn't return any property. 
but I don't know what else, what are some of the highlights that we're missing? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, like you had mentioned earlier, it's the immigrant trauma, right? Myself, luckily, I was not the one that had immigrated. My mother and my father, they took the hardship upon themselves to immigrate to the United States. And a lot of the generational trauma is inherited through them. And although it might not seem like we struggle with it, an example is as a child, right? Sometimes very early on when you're six, seven years old and told to translate documents, important Mm. documents for your family, and you have this burden so early on. And so I find it very common with a lot of second generation Asian Americans holding a lot of that trauma, that lost innocence. I think across generations, you definitely have a pervasive colorism that is present everywhere in the world. I mean, if you were to say it doesn't exist, is a complete fallacy, right? Advertisement is everywhere. And if you go to even Southeast Asia, right, where a lot of the population is very dark-skinned. The advertisements, there are all these people who don't look like anybody walking around in the streets, especially when I was in Thailand. And recently in the past few years, they've started to branch out and celebrating all the spectrum of all the skin tones. But easily, four years ago, there are all these Thai folks in the advertisements of people I've never seen walking around in the streets. And I'm like, where are these people from? (laughs) And I've seen some of the skin bleaching advertisements that come from different parts of Asia. And I'm like, whoa, somebody needs a major, like, (laughs) yes, (laughs) you need some introspection. (laughs) But the sad thing is how many other, yeah. It's like all these other people of color though are like, oh, you know where you can get the best bleaching cream? I'm like, no, don't. Instead of people being like, oh no, that's so problematic. They're like, oh, they have the best bleaching creams over there. (laughs) I know, I know. And it it might come across too as these, you know, innocent comments here and there. And I think Asia still has a lot to catch up with. You definitely have a lot of the Asian folks here in America stewarding a lot of the conversation overseas. And a lot of folks in Asia are still really wrapped up deep in advertisements, systemic cultural norms that are very hard to break. And yeah, it's a process. It's, a, it's definitely a process. And even just myself being in America, right? I'm just trying to be very empathetic. Even myself in America, it's taking what, 20 plus years to get to this point right. with the folks overseas who don't have the resources, right? Even just think about we're resources, right? It was just only legalized in Taiwan a year ago and then in Thailand, right? Same-sex partnerships recently. And the rest of Asia is still criminalized or mm. not allowable to have same-sex partnerships. Like so, period? Or yeah, you mean there's no period. marriage equality? Oh, you uh, can't even... You can't even have a domestic, legal no. domestic partnership. Yeah. Oh, Taiwan was the first last year. Yes. And that's how really behind it is. And when I say this, it really puts in a perspective for a lot of folks who are not as connected than Asian for such a huge demographic for it to not be legal. And for anyone Mm. who is like, oh my God, really? Just go on Wikipedia. Just look up LGBT rights in Asia. It's an entire Wikipedia page and you just go down. It's criminalized, 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 not allowable, criminalized, 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 criminalized. 
across many, many countries. Yeah. That's really interesting because I feel like in my head anyway, I always blame this puritanical Christian background in the U.S. for our issues with homophobia. So for that to also be an issue, even in countries that are not majority Christian, that's really disappointing. So where does this come from? And what is the issue? Is it something to do with just misogyny or toxic masculinity? What do you see as the reason why (laughs) homophobia is so common? It's a lot of that. I think the one interesting thing about the Asian culture is a lot of respect for elders, right? But also to a point where you don't question elders. Mm -hmm. And so you end up getting a lot of the homophobic rhetoric, homophobic culture that is passed down without being questioned. If my mother said it a certain way, then it must be right, you know? And it's really just within the past few years, you're starting to see a shift in really challenging societal forms. But I think it's just a really difficult area to navigate through if all your life, right, you're brought up in a culture where you put elders on a pedestal, you don't question your parents, and sometimes their thinking is very limited. And it's not their fault if they were exposed to that also growing up. And so you get this cyclical pattern that is very, very, very hard to break because a lot of the people who are in the countries feel as though they're disrespecting the culture, disrespecting the family, disvowing them filial piety, right? And being able to navigate that with having the conversation of queer rights. And so I have so much compassion, especially for folks who are in the country. And I think the more we can create content spaces that isn't just localized, right? In America, where we have freedom to have this uh, and invite a lot of the people who don't have the opportunity to have this overseas and also maybe to help them in the conversation they haven't had before, I think will get us all there. Yeah. Hopefully one day. This episode is brought to you by the Body Liberation for All community. If you are tired of digging through self-help resources for things that actually apply to your lived experience, I've got you covered. The Body Liberation for All community is 100% centered on LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC identities. Every resource that you will find there was created with you in mind. There are so many things that are unique to the queer and the person of color experience that are not being addressed in any other wellness circles. This is where you need to be to find resources crafted with your experience in mind that will help you live the happiest most fulfilled version of your life. If you'd like to learn more, just visit community.daliakinsey.com. The link is in the show notes. Now, coming out can already be very difficult depending on your family dynamic, but that makes it sound like it's even more difficult, even if you're living here in the U.S. where potentially it would be safe for you to come out, but you may have to accept Mm -hmm. that you're going to lose your connection to your family and you've been raised to be even closer to them than the other people around you. How do you suggest people navigate that? And was that your experience or was your family affirming? I always say coming out is our second puberty. (laughs) 
we learn about this whole new person, right? That was there all this time, but we've never really understood that person, that part of ourselves. And there is this coming out shedding that happens too, where it feels more comfortable to have a new community that knows you for who you are versus you telling everyone else that every time you said you were straight, it was all a lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this really difficult part where it's, you love all these people so much and you hate yourself so much for having lied. And it, it's almost so much easier to have a new community. So I think queer affirming communities, a queer Asian or queer black or indigenous affirming communities, these are amazing, beautiful spaces where people can come in without having these previous relationships to really be who they are without having second thoughts. And I think that was really instrumental, at least for myself, to explore what does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be queer Asian? And I think it was once I was able to get some maturity in that aspect, I was able to revisit, have enough courage and strength to go back to first my friends that I was not open with <laughs> coming out with. And then actually I only came out to my mom within the past four years, I forget, pretty recent. And it was just extremely, extremely hard to do so. My father passed away when I was young and so it's just my mother now. And it was just really one of the hardest things to do. And also still struggling. She struggles to understand and has also taken me a lot to understand where that's from too. I think we're also fed this rhetoric of if you don't accept me, you know, GTFO, right? right <laughs> or like the middle right. finger. And I, I think a huge learning opportunity for me was to have compassion for especially my mother who couldn't see eye to eye with my queer identity to also understand where she came from, her background and uh, extremely, extremely poor rural area of Taiwan and definitely no queer anything in that region. And I think it's still a work in progress, but in that process, actually, a lot of love for myself too. Instead of thinking that it's a battle, try to force people to love us. We can choose to put out whatever we want to. Uh, and it's up to us to also help people, help guide people to see something in us that we also struggled with, you know? That's huge because I think there's just something about that mm -hmm. relationship with the mother, usually, that it just feels like if your mother rejects you, you're going to drop dead or implode. That's how it feels to me anyway. <laughs> I, know. I know. I cried so much that <laughs> it was like a deep sadness for like a whole entire week that I've never mm. felt before. I mean, one, it was just finally just feeling free to express this sadness, this grief that I've held on to, right? The secret, but yeah. also not getting from her what I would see on YouTube, right? We see all right. of these people celebrating all of these, you know, accepting families who are making cakes for their yeah, kids coming nice. out. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this disconnect, right? I watch all these videos and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Great for you. And then when it finally comes to me, I think I was just, it shook me. It really shook me. And I was just so sad. I cried so much and it took me some time. I had to disconnect a little bit to 
collect myself. And uh, I think also it was a journey to find love for her, even though she wasn't like all these other families. Right. It really sounds like you built up your resilience before you took on what you knew was going to be a massive thing emotionally. What recovery tools? Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's your story? Like? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been really interesting. I yeah. feel like I've compartmentalized a lot yeah. of my life because I was raised in an extremely conservative, kind of fundamentalist Christian type of environment and maybe a little culty. You know, yeah. they still yeah. don't think it's a cult. I, Don't really agree, but it's two things. It's fear of rejection plus, am I hurting them for no reason? Because if Mm -hmm. I'm out to my friends, do they need to know? And also with being bisexual, if I'm partnered with an opposite gender person, do Mm -hmm. I need to be out? But Mm -hmm. just, yes, to me, for me, the answer is yes. And I love my queer chosen family so much. It felt so false and disrespectful to be passing. Mm -hmm. And of course, if it's not safe for someone to come out, that's a different thing. And at the same time, everyone has to make their own decisions about being out. But to me, the rewards, and I just feel like I need to be myself no matter the cost. But it's definitely a process because I see where I still continually will break myself into parts to be more acceptable. Like where maybe at work, some people will know, but not everyone will know. And I've accepted too much guidance from people who aren't having the same lived experience who would say, well, well, you're you. Why can't you just be you? You don't have to tell everybody. Well, that's great for you to say as a cis white hat male, like yeah, what if yeah. that it, you're, <laughs> Advice is not helpful Um, in this case. And I (laughs) need to hear from someone who knows what it really does to you to feel like you're never allowed to be yourself 100% and to live with that fear that if I'm ever fully myself, everyone will leave me, which in reality, when you fully show up, that's when your people show up. And that's when your chosen family shows up. But this is something that someone who hasn't had that experience of being othered would understand. And because most of us are surrounded by people who are not having that experience, they tend to be where we get our advice from if we haven't thought through how that can be an issue. (laughs) And so it's just taken me a while to get to the point where I realized what I really needed to do to settle into myself fully. And it's still a little bit of a process. Actually, this weekend, part of my homework, I have a queer decolonization coach for business. And awesome. (laughs) I I am so excited to have her. It's making a huge difference. I had a business coach in the past that didn't have the same lived experience and was not giving me the advice I really needed to thrive. But I didn't know it. I didn't know what I was missing until I found it. But through just me discussing how I felt scattered in some areas and like I just couldn't get it together with my schedule, I realized I drag my feet on some things because it doesn't feel aligned. And then I drag my feet on other things because I'm afraid of alienating people and having like the cishet white folks of the community yeah. run for the hills, even though I don't necessarily need them. I don't, not necessarily, I don't need them. 
And not all content has to be targeted at you for you to enjoy it. We all know that as people of color. And we end up just playing into the cis heteronormative structures. Exactly. Yeah. Unconsciously, by and large. But it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like, I never watched Friends back in the day and thought, this must not be for me because there's no people of color. But we've been trained to not expect to see ourselves in our entertainment. But at the same time, even though now, if I watch a replay of that, I'm like, seriously, like not one Black friend in freaking New York gets serious. The only way that would happen is if like you're full-blown racist and you did it on purpose. (laughs) But still, it did not kill me to watch that show. There are a lot of things about that show I liked. It was funny. It was fine. So if I can watch content that was not made for me, cishet white well, my audience are welcome to come on in to my LGBTQA plus and BIPOC focused content. They'll be fine. But it's taken me a long time to have that realization. And that has a lot of trickling effects. So a lot of my recent study in the past year is also understanding relationships and love. And what does that look like, especially for a lot of us who are struggling even just to understand what does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be minority, a person of color? And just like you mentioned, we're growing up watching media, right? With all of these white folks having amazing, beautiful, healthy relationships, right? And we also end up internalizing that. For us to find love, we must find this white person, white individual that we saw on TV. And it has a lot to do with brain chemistry too, where we see something on TV and it's releasing dopamine. We're feeling relaxed and it has ramifications out in the real world too. And the interesting thing is also, what does it mean to decolonize our love, our relationships? And I think it's a very radical concept to understand that we have a lot of control to shape who we love, who we desire. We just have to read. We have to expose ourselves to that content. We have to watch romance films with a lot of different identities with people we've never seen before to start training our mind to be able to release some of the chemicals that we were trained for how long? Decades and decades and decades. Yes. Yeah. Our whole lives. Oh yes. That's next level. That is fascinating. Cause you wonder sometimes, I know this has crossed my mind Yeah. when you see older white gentlemen and you're like, Ooh, I'm like, what is this really natural? Or was I brainwashed to think that older white guys are super hot? Definitely that's from media because that's what you constantly see as the leading man. That yeah, is who's gonna who's gonna sweep in, right? Who's gonna be the Romeo to your Juliet? And there's a lot of just training, right? Imagine just seeing this every single day. I mean, this is literally what happened, right? You were watching television every day growing up. Every single day we're being told through video that this is a person who's gonna take care of all the people on the set. All the people who have issues, they're going to solve everyone's conflict. Of course, we see them in the street. We're going to think the same way. It's decades and decades and decades of that training. And so it's next level for sure. It's very hard to first acknowledge. I think a lot of the times when people say, I love who I love and that you can't change. But 
if you've been watching media for 20, 30, 40 plus years, it definitely has an effect on that. Yeah, we've been conditioned to have a preference. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. And we know that you can have like internalized oppression and internalized racism, but we don't always think about how does that affect who I love and who I partner with. So I mean, a simple exercise is, let's just say we used to date someone who had a specific hobby. Maybe they just like to crochet. No tea to people who crochet, who's listening, but uh, they just love to crochet. And that relationship just went terrible, broke up fire and storm. You don't talk to them anymore. The next time you meet somebody who crochets, oh, what are you going to feel? You're right? going to run. <laughs> You're going to run. You're going to run for the hill. You're like You don't know anything about them, but they crochet. And you're like, that's enough. This is all it's I It's a deal breaker. <laughs> this is a deal breaker. Exactly. And so it's the same exact way how our previous lived experiences shape who we actively even seek now without us even knowing. And might not be as obvious as crocheting because we only meet certain people who crochet, right? Every, um, now, lives, and then. every now and then. But when it comes to ethnicity, when we see them all around us, it's actually harder to discern what is different, right? Mm-hmm. To tell a difference in what is day to day. I think it's also really great for people to get out of America, to go into countries where the white isn't the majority and then see what that feels like and see how that shifts. Because when we're just exposed to it all the time, we just don't even know. We're just walking around with open wounds. We can't even figure out how to go about healing it because it's just there, invisible to us. Yeah. How does that affect people's ability to find love, do you find, among gay Asian men who maybe have that natural affinity for conditioning to only want to partner with white men. And a lot of times those white men have been conditioned in exactly the same way. So Mm -hmm. everybody's looking for a white male partner. So how does that play out? Yeah. I mean, it's the typical rice queen, potato queen. Are you familiar Mm, with those terms? I've never heard that. sounds pretty sketchy. The rice queen is a queen who loves rice. So Asian, Asian fetishization. A potato queen is, a potato is white. (laughs) And so Uh, it is the fetishization of the white counterpart. And so you can actually have both ways. Sometimes people say, well, you can't fetishize white. Oh, yes, yes, you can. Mm. Where it, the ethnicity takes a life of its own, more so than the person in the relationship with the ethnicity rather than the individual themselves. Oh, so, that's fascinating. How do you know when you're doing that to your yeah, partner? It's dating patterns, right? You just look at the dating history. Who are they dating? Who are they seeking dates with? Who are they messaging if they're on the dating apps? And uh, it's a realization people struggle with because a lot of time, like we said, you know, people say, I love who I love. You can't change that, you know? And so a lot of the times they don't want to have these discussions because from the outside in, it doesn't have a great narrative because it doesn't have really great roots, but to hear that about themselves, they immediately distance them. They're like, I'm not that, you know? Mm, yeah. But it's like internalized racism, internalized homophobia. It's like, of course I'm not homophobic. Of course I'm not racist, right? And I think it's the same thing for this fetishization of ethnicities. And so, especially for myself for the longest time, because of where I was, especially, it was a lot white 
dominant individuals, a lot of Hispanic people who are white passing, right? So I was like, oh, of course, I'm diverse because I'm dating all these Hispanic individuals who are light skin. I mean, they're white passing. And I had to also confront this potato queendom of myself, this fetishization. I think as a part of that, just deepening the exploration, where does this come from? What does it mean? Allowed me to really go deep into that trauma. But it's very pervasive. It is very pervasive because media is pervasive. And so it's so funny. I'm like looking at myself and the sun's like coming in and out. I see it <laughs> like, must have been like a cloud going by. And then I was wondering, is it doing it here? I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> you're just listening to the audio. Literally, I like whitewash out. I'm also wearing white on the screen. So I'm just like blended and I'm talking. <laughs> it's perfect timing because just when yeah. you're like, and I'm dating all of these white yeah. and then this <laughs> and I'm white. <laughs> <laughs> it was a startling realization. And I made a podcast episode about it where I really went deep into having this discussion with myself, uh, a narrative to ask myself, where does this come from? And how might I go about maybe not radicalizing in one day, right? right. To become somebody different. But how do you find compassion for it? And to figure out how to diversify from there on. Yeah. And if you find that you happen to be really connected with someone who is white, does that Mm -hmm. enable you to have a deeper connection with them as an individual? Definitely does. A lot of folks who have did a lot of white individuals are just not very mindful individuals, especially Asian folks. You have all these traumas that you just joke around where I've been on so many dates where the guys will pull out their phone and show me their past exes. And, and they're all Asians. Asian. Yeah. And I'm like, I always laugh that off. You're like, oh, that's funny. But you're like, no. Well, are they just showing, showing it to talk about something else about their exes? Or they're wanting yeah. to tell you, oh, look, I only date Asian guys. Yeah. I think it's multifaceted, but I think they're trying to somehow find solidarity in you, to say, but hey, in the I'm most improper way possible, right? Yeah. But it's like, I love Asian people. Look, I love them so much. I'm trying to show you proof. Mm. Just like, uh, it does feel yeah. weird. That is so true. I think anyone, <laughs> any person of color who's dated yeah. white folks has had that experience where you're yeah. like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this, but... Yeah. <laughs> You usually just go right past yeah. it. Yeah. There's all these little quips too, where another one is they'll say, Oh my God, I could totally speak X Asian language, you know? And they open their mouth. You're like, Yeah, that was hello. That's not <laughs> awesome, you know? <laughs> and they hyped it up, and that's the awesome. That's the end yeah. of it. Yeah. I can also speak English too. I know. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, how embarrassing. Not for me, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's all oh, these things. And then, like, once you realize, you know, this ethnic fetishization, um, understanding it, I think I'm able to pick it up a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, in the past recent few years, I was very angry about it. Now I come from a perspective of education, right? Opening them up as well, not being so combative because they also come from a not very educated place you know Mm, yeah yeah. that was definitely a recent learning in the past few years 
I can hear how mindfulness is extremely helpful in navigating those types of conversations. Did your awareness as far as how mindfulness could affect all areas of your life come in gradually? Or once you saw that it helped you heal from a physical ailment, did you already know, like, literally, this is going to make my entire life better or different? Yeah. So my first foray into mindfulness was through, you know, capitalism culture where we do all these things to be more productive. Right. And I think why mindfulness became so big here in the United States first was because it was sold as this new technique to perform better at work, this new technique to have better relationships with people, check boxes. Right. Right. Um, and I definitely was guilty of that. And I took it on and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, you know? <laughs> and I think I didn't really grasp the concept until it was a full embodiment of it. And so when it was my sickness, I was actually in the hospital for a few months, going back and forth to the hospital multiple times a week. And I think the most disheartening part was coming in the morning, doing all the tests, getting all the blood work, getting all of the medications while you're put down and you're Mm. waking up at night, having no idea what happened in the day Uh. and having that happen multiple times a week. It was shocking. But coming out of that, I worked with these Western doctors and they said, the sooner you can live and accept this, the sooner you'll be happy. And I just had a really tough time accepting this as a late 27, 28, I forget how old I was, but 27, 28, I, I was just struggling to accept hospitals for the rest of my life, you know? And I went to Eastern doctor in uh, Mill Valley, which is north of San Francisco. Awesome, awesome, awesome healer. And she just sat with me. Our first session, she just sat with me for two hours, three hours. Wow. And we just grieved. And I think it was a lot of combination of therapy with Western testing practices, with Eastern mindfulness, diet, lifestyle exercises, a combination of that completely radicalized, changed my health to a point where the doctors were like, I don't know how this is possible, but okay, sure. Don't take these medications anymore. And I was like, but you just told me this was going to be my life. I trusted you. (laughs) I was rooting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. You got to that point of desperation that you looked for someone else's opinion. Yeah. So you still technically have a chronic illness, but it's like subclinical now. So it's almost like you don't have it from day to day. Yeah, it definitely comes back. It flares up whenever I'm stressed, taking care of myself. But it's one of those things where what's happened has happened and you just learn to create a relationship with it. You know, sometimes it comes to visit, sometimes it doesn't. And I think also mindfulness, especially sometimes with chronic pain, I had developed arthritis Mm -hmm. in the process as well. And so sometimes with arthritis, just have pervasive pain. And the practice of mindfulness was to be more compassionate and being okay with the pain. And I think having that actually decreased the pain because you've built a relationship. And uh, I think it has been able to help heal me spiritually, mentally, physically, in so many ways that I couldn't 
force my body to, right? This is a lot of Western practices forcing your body to do something if it's not listening, right? Mm-hmm. You have pills, you have lifestyle practices, right? Productivity exercises, you know, it's like, let me do this so I can force my body to do this. Whereas I think mindfulness is learning to navigate the waters, right? It's not being in the ocean with a motorboat, right? Forcing mm, it, where you have to yeah. pour gasoline into it, but you're with a surfboard. You may come in, you may come out, and it's about learning how to ride the waves so you can navigate the ocean. And it's possible. And I think it's been a big part of my life now to be able to help other people uh, realize this. But at the same time, it's not feeding them what works for me, it's to also allow them to explore and figure out what it is for them. Oh, love that explanation of what mindfulness does for how you navigate life. What is an entry point that you recommend for people who maybe haven't done any kind of mindfulness practice before? Yeah, great question. I would say start with a short meditation practice. And when I say short, I mean really short one to two minutes where you just sit in a chair, you sit somewhere. Uh, nice and comfortable, maybe it's with a cushion on the floor and start there. You know, I think we are comprised of this body with so many radio frequencies inside and we never really sit into it and listen what's on the radio. And even just 60 seconds every day can radically transform our perspective of ourselves. And then the second method is if somebody has the bandwidth and the uh, time and the capacity to engage with other leaders, other healers who can help guide them. That's always a great entry point as well, especially for folks who need a little bit of a push, a little bit of accountability. You can definitely check out meditation instructors, Eastern healers, acupuncturists, naturopathic medicine, and even Eastern-based therapists, you know, the way they practice therapy. I think those are amazing avenues to start exploring. I love that. Where do we find your show so that we can hear more of how you're helping your audience become more mindful? And I'm so jealous, by the way, that Gaijin is just like the perfect word and it makes so much sense. It's so cute. And I'm like, Darn, I don't have an equivalent. <laughs> I just love like your marketing and the yellow glitter. It's also cute. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can find Yellow Glitter. That's the name of the podcast on all podcast platforms. So if you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, just type in Yellow Glitter and you should see a picture of my face with my head tilted back. <laughs> and on my episodes, you'll hear a lot of interviews with a lot of Croatian folks on just how they're being more mindful and exploring their own journeys of mindfulness, self-acceptance, self-love. Uh-huh. And my earlier episodes have a lot of the deep narratives. So definitely, if anyone's interested, check out first five episodes of like one hour long episodes, but we go in deep with some of the topics we talked about today, like homophobia, internalized racism, rice queendom. Yeah. Mm. Oh, awesome. I'm going to link those in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. We learned so much in like such a short window of time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to affirm and 
just so grateful for you to also be creating spaces for other queer folks of color. I think it's so important. And especially even for our allies who can enter the space and listen to an episode or two, where we can have these conversations, the more mindful we can be with each other. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Make sure you check out Yellow Glitter. This show is so full of gems that we can all use. And I don't know about you, but I get really bored with always hearing things from a white cis hat perspective. And I love hearing different narratives. And it doesn't matter if it isn't created for me and I'm not the target. After all, we pretty much all have plenty of experience consuming media that's not centered on us. However, when it is showcasing an experience that we don't frequently get to hear about, I think it's so beneficial. So much shared experiences come through when you hear from people who are second-gen kids and other people of color who've had to work through their own issues with internalized white supremacy and internalized homophobia. So Stephen's podcast is wonderful. I highly recommend it. I also want to shout Stephen out for being strong enough and clear enough on his vision to create an affinity space that's dedicated to queer Asian folks, because there are so many conflictive feelings that people have about creating a space that's dedicated for one community. As we push in general towards inclusion, sometimes people of color feel as though they are not allowed to create a sacred space to fill a need that they know is there. Because of all the trauma that we all have, and unfortunately, you know, you hate to believe that it's true, but I've heard it from too many people to deny it. There have been plenty of instances where Asian folks in my life have been bullied by other people of color that were not Asian. When you really want to let your hair down and get the healing process rolling, it really helps to be in a place where you feel safe and secure. And when you see people that remind you of previous abuse, it's going to take you even longer to get to that place to where you feel safe and secure so you can start the healing process. First, you have to establish that you're in a safe space. And then what if you're not? People are in different places with their internalized white supremacy. It just makes sense to me that sometimes affinity groups around specific ethnicities or specific lived experiences are necessary for healing and they're very helpful. And it isn't about us. And by us, I mean the people that are not being included in that healing space. It is up to the healer to create the space that they want based on what they feel called to do and who they feel called to serve. And as the healer, you have to create the safe space to really get in there with your work. So I respect and I love what Stephen has done. And I know for myself, I even felt conflicted when I was thinking about creating wellness resources and content specifically focused on my marginalized identities as a queer person and a person of color. And I worried about pushback and people saying that they felt left out. But seeing someone else model this and hearing how well this is working for the audience is really powerful. So if there is something you are feeling called to do, but you are worried 
about other people feeling rejected in your attempts to really focus on serving one group of people. Look at this model and consider whether or not what you're trying to do is also valid, necessary, and could be a blessing and a healing source for the group of folks that you have in mind. I created a virtual summit earlier this year that was specifically for Black Americans that were going through a ton of stress related to the major civil rights movement, coupled with the pandemic. And a lot of issues and conflict came up for me around having a summit that was focused on Black joy. I felt conflicted about not including all people of color. I felt conflicted about leaving out the white allies and spent energy trying to deal with those feelings and then also creating a special ally track. Like I could not see creating something and not making a part of it for white people. But the funniest part to me was how white Americans have been socialized to see themselves in everything and to feel welcome almost anywhere. There were so many white folks who approached me about registering or who just did register for the part of the summit that was specifically for Black people and watched and loved it all. If you're worried about leaving people out in your audience, you may be surprised how few people who are allies and not openly in love with white supremacy will totally resonate with what you're saying and doing anyway, even if you continue to focus on the people you want to serve most. So it's interesting when you fully show up and you do what you feel called to do, more people than you are actually targeting and trying to reach are going to eventually be reached by your message. So you're certainly not limiting yourself by serving people who share the same marginalized identities as you. And the Black Joy Summit is still available on demand. If you are a Black person who is really working on your stress management skills, because this year has been a doozy, you'll definitely want to check that out. My second virtual summit will be this January, and it's called Diet Culture Detox. This is going to be a decolonized wellness event. We'll be featuring several speakers, healers of color. This is going to be seven days of helping everyone avoid falling into the diet trap at the top of the year, which happens so often. Avoid all the diet culture that's floating around because it's toxic. It doesn't support health and it has roots in white supremacy. It isn't going to build up your sense of empowerment. It's not useful on any level. So what we will be focusing on is how to decolonize our body image, how to decolonize our relationship to food, our relationship to each other, and so much more. Registration is open now. Just visit the main website, that's daliakinsey.com, and you'll find the event under the virtual summit section of the site. Of course, if you are already on the mailing list, you know about this and you don't have to worry. You've had the link delivered straight to your inbox. If you are not, what are you waiting for? I have so many goodies for you. You want to be on the mailing list. People on the mailing list get discounted rates and I'm the first to know about 
all the cool tools that I'm creating for you and content that is out there created specifically with you in mind. To get on the mailing list, just visit www.sendfox.com slash Dahlia Kinsey. As always, these links are in the show notes. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited for my queer folk, my trans, people of color. Let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Let's go.